And now, Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Lord, help us to see by aid of the Holy Spirit how we stand in light of your truth. Give us words of comfort and conviction. Give us words of healing and forgiveness. Give us words that inspire and motivate and direct and guide. And most of all, let us see our blessed Lord in all his beauty, in all his glory, and in all his grace. We ask these things in the name of Christ and all God's people said, amen. During the Revolutionary War, the British forces were dressed with red coats. England had a lot of money, uh, strongest empire in the world, able to outfit their soldiers in these amazing red coats. And uh, it turned out to be not such a good thing in guerrilla warfare, but they looked pretty. The colonists, the Continental Army, had blue coats, right? Basically, now that was not true of all the soldiers because there wasn't enough money to outfit them. They wore whatever they could find. But the generals, like General Washington, had a beautiful blue dress coat that he wore as commander of all the Continental Armies. Now, if you went from one side to the other side, what did they often call you? A turncoat, right. You changed colors. You became a turncoat. I grew up in the east side of the state, uh, grew up in Pontiac, Michigan, Waterford area, and growing up all my young days into college and into young adulthood, I was a University of Michigan fan. I wore the blue and the gold. Those were my colors. All the way until God called me to Lansing, and then I became a turncoat. <laughs> I got rid of everything that was blue and gold. I started wearing green and uh, green and white started going to the games, and I knew I was really uh, converted when I wanted Michigan to lose, right? I mean, that's when you can tell your loyalties are really, really uh, sound and truly changed. And so yesterday, for a turncoat like me, was a decent day. <laughs> Did you know that that's not a bad way to describe a Christian? A turncoat? Not a Michigan State fan only, but a turncoat. Because you were born in one team, and your affections were with that team, and you wore the colors of that team, Team Satan. <laughs> you say, hey, I wasn't that bad. Uh, you're in one of two teams, and you're born in the team of the God of this world. And conversion is turning coat exchanging the garment defiled by sin to the garment of salvation and the garment of righteousness. You've changed colors. And that was one of the greatest ways to describe conversion in the scriptures as well, especially in the text that we want to look at today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me remind you that our theme 
in the study. Our theme verse for the study of this book is verse 7 that says that the people in Thessaloniki, when they believed in Christ, they became a model church to all the believers in the north, Macedonia, northern area of Greece, and to Achaia in the south. Throughout the whole nation, they were model believers. And that's why we're calling this series a faith worth following. Let's understand their faith, and let's try to emulate it. Let's pattern ourselves after it. Let's walk in their steps. Let's mimic their life. May our faith follow their example. And we've noticed already that this particular church was an engaged church. Verse 3 tells us they were working because of their faith. They were laboring because of their love. And they were filled with hope and uh, they were enduring because of hope. So this was a church that was very engaged. Now all of this after only a few weeks of being converted. That's pretty amazing. A model church right from the get-go. They were not only an engaged church, they were an enduring church. Verse 3 talks about endurance, and then later down in verse 6, in spite of severe suffering, they welcomed the message. So they endured persecution they were an enduring church. They were an elect church. Verse 4 and 5, the doctrine of election. God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. Mysterious to be sure, but a great comfort to every child of God to know that God has sought you and God has saved you, not because of who you are, but by grace alone. They're an evangelistic church. Verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you in Macedonia and Achaia. Not only there, but your faith in God has become known everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. I mean, before we tell people, they tell us. The holy gossip has got around, and people have heard of your wonderful change, this miraculous change. And we could add to that list they were an expectant church because, as we noted, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with the expectant look to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as we come to the end of chapter 1, it appears that Paul may be playing on an ancient Christian formula that describes an authentic believer or a model believer. What is it? Well, the Apostle Paul analyzes that authentic believer and true conversion with three perspectives. The first is that there is a radical turning in their life from one thing to something else. You'll notice that in verse 9. Paul says, for they themselves, that is the people that we talk to, report what kind of reception we had that you gave us when we preached the gospel to you. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So these were people that experienced turning, and it was a radical change, a decisive turn. It was like going from one team to another. It was like changing coats. By the way, one of the most radical turncoats, most well-known turncoats in the Revolutionary War, was a guy by the name of Benedict Arnold. Remember that name? And what do you think of when you think of Benedict Arnold? Traitor, 
right? And uh, there's some degree of disgust. But if you would study the history of the Revolutionary War, you would realize that we probably wouldn't have won the war had it not been for the early exploits of General Benedict Arnold. At Saratoga and in other places, he was the epitome of bravery, and he led our troops successfully into battle against a more powerful army, and he stood against them, and we won, and all that encouragement motivated the troops all the way down the line. Benedict Arnold was a hero. That's why his change <laughs> was, was so radical and why the, the change still comes to us today, hundreds of years after the fact, with disgust. Having been lured by Britain, still, have, still having Tory sympathies, offered fame and wealth, he turned coat. Do you realize that that's how a lot of people in this world think about you when you change your allegiance from the world to Jesus? They think upon you as a traitor, and with disgust. You've changed teams. You've left their team. Why did you leave our team, says your family? Why would, did you join those fanatics down the street at South Church? I can't believe you're part of them. What has gotten into you? And then they mention names like Jim Jones. You know, that's the same thing that's going on there. Or a televangelist just to make us look really bad. You're a turncoat. Well, that was a mark for a believer. It was probably a technical term for true conversion. They turned from idols to God. By the way, you can't turn from one thing unless you turn to something else. It's the principle of replacement. If you leave one God, you've got to replace that God with another God. In this case, they left false gods to believe in the true God. The theological term we use for this word turning is repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. But it also connects with regret in the heart because our former ways were wrong and they offended a holy God and they inflicted uh, sin and horrible consequences on ourselves and our friends and family. We regret that. We repent over that, and we turn to a new way. We turn to a new path, repentance. In poetic fashion, one author said, Repentance is to leave the things I loved before and show that I in earnest grieve by doing so no more. That's repenting. A change of mind with grief or regret in the heart and a change of life and behavior so that that change of mind is applied to all of our deeds and we are indeed turncoats. If you would ask me when you were saved, I would say I was saved November 1967. That's when I became born again. That's the terminology we usually use. I received Christ. Christ became my Lord and Savior. I got saved. Something like that. But if you were in Russia and you were talking to a believer through a translator and said, tell me when you got saved, they would say this, I repented in November 1967. Their word for conversion is repentance. Have you repented? 
they'll say to a person. When did you repent? And it's true that a Christian is always repenting, but it marks that wonderful radical change when we change sides from Satan team, Satan's team to God's. And that indeed is radical. If you analyze it, they turned from idols. And they turned to, as he's described, the living and true God. What a contrast. Think of it. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are manufactured. God is the creator of the universe. Idols are visible. God is invisible. Idols are many. God is one. Idols are dead. God is alive. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, the psalmist in 115, loved to bring in this whole idea of idolatry and compare the living God with dead idols. Dead idols you make out of a piece of wood or stone. You set it up. If there's an earthquake, it falls over. You talk to it, but it never talks to you. You move it, it never moves you. You carry it, it can't carry you. But I'm the living God. Isaiah proclaimed from the mouth of Jehovah, I will pick you up and carry you. I will be your burden carrier. Idols only add to your burden. Imagine that, bowing down before an idol. How superstitious. This picture that was taken this last spring when we were in the city of Thessalonica, we were up on the high hill of the city, of the ancient city, where there's a crusader castle built. And from this wonderful ruin, we can look down to the port. As I mentioned before, that was a growing concern, a very uh, profitable port in the first century, and it is in the 21st century. And you can see the ships that are out there in the Gulf. Only 50 miles across that Gulf, can you see in the distance the outline of a mountain? Can you see that? If you can't, you might need glasses. Um, trust me, it's there. It's not the clearest of pictures, and it was a bit hazy. Some days there's no way you can see it. Other days it's just as clear as can be, kind of like Mount Hood uh, in the west, northwest of our own country. That is Mount Olympus, 50 miles from the city of Thessaloniki. And you know who purportedly lives on Mount Olympus? All the Greek gods. And I can imagine Paul gesturing when he was preaching the gospel and saying, those gods living on that there mountain are dead, worthless. You must give yourself to the true God. And they did. Missionaries tell us that real conversion takes place not when someone receives Christ. That's part of it. True conversion takes place when they stand up and to all their peers they say, I renounce all my other gods. Now that's conversion. Many evangelists have been fooled in India when they would preach the gospel and say, would you like to trust Christ? And hundreds come down to the front to pray the prayer to receive Christ, only to find out later they're adding Jesus to their God shelf. They've got a few thousand gods before him and, you know, sure, I'll take Christ. I'm afraid I don't, you know, like the people in Athens, to the unknown God, just in case I miss one. I'll take every God you've got. 
But tell those same people, renounce all your gods and have only one. Now, that's a different story. And true conversion is saying there is one God and one alone. He is the true and living God, and his son is Jesus Christ, who's coming back from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. So, uh, turning is a mark of true conversion. Have you repented? Have you put your faith and trust in God? You, you say, well, we don't have any idols to turn away from today. <laughs> well, we may not have the wood and stone type, but we have more sophisticated idols like money and fame and power and position and people and sports and TV and hobbies. Should I go on? We have manufactured a lot of idols and we spend time serving them. It was the Apostle Paul who said in Ephesians 5 that both immorality and greed are idolatry. They're little gods that we have created, and so we serve our gods. To be a Christian is to leave all other gods and all other trusts and put your hope in Jesus alone. So it is true, as was said by the old preacher, if Jesus fails me, I'm a goner because I'm not trusting in anything else. That is repentance, and that's the mark of a real believer. <coughs> there was a man who had a boat, and he spent a lot of his resources getting that boat, and because of that, he wanted to utilize his investment. He wanted to spend time on the boat, and the only time he could really spend was on Sunday because he worked hard six days during the week. So he stopped going to church so he could spend time on his boat. And his spiritual life went down the drain. Now, I'm not against boats. There's nothing wrong with boats. And as I said in the other two services, if you have a boat and you want to invite me on a cruise, I'd be glad to go. But this man worshipped the boat. He never got down on his knees and folded his hands and bowed his head, but with his time and with his resources and with his affection, he served the boat. When he realized that it became a god to him, he said, I've got to sell it. And the interesting thing was this. He put it out in the front of his yard with a sign that read, Idol for Sale. <laughs> now, I don't think that helped him sell it, but it was a great confession. What idols do you need to sell? What idols do you need to turn from? Give up your gods. They don't exist. And give everything you are, everything you have, to the true and living God. That's conversion. Paul said there's another mark added to this. And he mentions this in the last, in verse 9 as well. They are actively serving this living God. So a true believer, there's a radical change, a radical turning in the life. And then secondly, there is active, eager, enthusiastic serving of this living God. I mean, after all, if you believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, will you not serve him? 
That's exactly what we should be doing. Pastor Doug read from Romans chapter 6. And it's a wonderful section of Scripture which highlights this important truth. Real conversion is simply a change of masters. It's a change of kingdom, kingdoms, and it's a change of lords. Born into this world, you're part of the kingdom of darkness, and you're on Team Satan. When you get saved, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the light, the kingdom of his dear son. And as it says in Romans 6, as you once served sin, now serve Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your time, with all of your resources. Conversion is simply a change of masters. Now, to be sure, the masters are far different and the outcomes are far different. When you serve Satan, you're in bondage, held by superstition and fear, and the outcome is death. When you serve Jesus, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. And the end of serving Jesus is life that never ends. The analogy is that your servant in both kingdoms, the difference is, oh, this kingdom is far better than the one I had before. And because of that, you ought to serve God with everything you have, wholeheartedly and enthusiastically. Again, in a matter of weeks, they come up to speed to the place where they're a model-serving church. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, as each one has received a gift, so use it. Serve one another with the gifts that you've received as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's 1 Peter 4.10. You have been given a gift. Use it to serve the God of heaven. I mean, after all, if it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, and if God has gifted you to serve others in his body, in the church, then you ought to be serving with the gifts God has given you, and you will be richly blessed, and when you don't serve, you're robbing yourself of blessing. And so God tells us that we need to be serving, and yet how sad it is to think that in Bible-believing churches today, the average percentage of those who are faithfully serving is probably 20, 25, maybe at best 30%. Wow. What's the deal? Now, we can't judge a person whether they're truly a Christian or not, but we can say this. One of the marks of a real believer is that they serve. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, that great description of salvation? Do you remember that? For by grace are we saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Salvation's a gift of God. It's not the result of our working. So no one can boast. What's the next verse after those two verses that deal with salvation? For we are God's workmanship. The Greek word is poem. We are God's poem. We're God's workmanship. We've been ordained, created to do good works. That's why God saved us. And so salvation, we are saved to serve. Salvation should lead to a holy life and active service, and that's exactly what they were doing. And I love 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
all about the resurrection, right? Longest chapter in the New Testament. You get near the end, and it says, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your power? Law, you don't have sway over me anymore. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, I've been delivered from all of that. What does verse 58 say? Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your work in God is never useless, vain, or empty. Give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, you get a disciple's reward. Forget about the consequences. That's in God's hands. You do what he tells you to do. And that's why I'm so shocked that in Bible churches like ours, so many people have no heart to serve. What does that mean? If the mark of a real believer is turning and serving, and you haven't turned and you're not serving, what does that mean? You tell me. The last mark, Paul says in verse 10, is this expectant waiting. They were expectantly waiting for Jesus to return, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That coming wrath probably refers to two installments of the wrath of God. While Thessalonians talks about the second coming of Christ, Paul nowhere gives us detailed timing of his coming. And this is one of the reasons why the church is divided over when Jesus is going to come. But I think what he's referring to is probably two aspects of the Lord's return. There is the rapture where the people of God are taken out before the time of D Jacob's trouble comes on the earth, before the wrath of God is poured out in the great tribulation. And then there is the being rescued from eternal wrath, the eternal judgment of God that goes on forever and ever. And those who trust in Jesus Christ are rescued before wrath pours out on the earth, and they are rescued eternally from eternal judgment and damnation. Jesus is our Savior. He's the one who rescues us from both of that. And we need to be looking for his coming. Now, I love how working and waiting are balanced together, don't you? Imagine if you were just working and not waiting. You would probably think that it all depends on you. And if you worked harder, the kingdom of God would go better. And if you had your way, you could really bring in a utopia. If you were the pastor of this church, it would be perfect because you know exactly what to do. I heard one pastor say this, Rome wasn't built in a day, and that's because I wasn't on the job. <laughs> had I been there, you know, had I been in the Garden of Eve with Adam and Eve, had I been in the Garden, we'd be in Eden still. So says Lancelot in that famous song of Camelot. Yeah, I would have made it. Things would have been different if I were in charge. You get the idea that if I work harder, I can make it happen. But the Bible says there's, no, there's not going to be any perfect world. There's not going to be any perfect peace until Jesus comes again, right? We cannot do it alone. But suppose you're just a waiting person and you're not too big on work. Jesus is coming again. So what are you going to do? I'm waiting. Good. Is that why you're sitting on the couch? Yeah. 
That's, I wait best lying on the couch. And if Jesus doesn't come today, tomorrow you'll find me on the same couch waiting. I'm waiting for his return. The parable of the virgins tells us, have your lamps filled and your wicks trimmed and occupy till I come, right? In your younger days, if your dad said, I want you to go out and mow the lawn, as my dad said to me often. And so you go out, and you would rather be doing a thousand other things. And perhaps that beautiful oak tree with its abundant shade calls you. And you rationalize, with a little bit of rest, I could mow a better lawn. I'd do a better job. So you go and rest. You're in in that zone somewhere between awake and asleep and you think you hear your dad coming what do you do you get up as quick as you can you start mowing the lawn you start pushing you want him to find you working when he comes not napping and there are too many people in the church who say yeah jesus is coming again he could come any day and i'm waiting i'm just i'm just waiting i'm just waiting no work and wait at the same time. We need to be a working church and a waiting church. Notice in chapter 1, we're waiting for Jesus to come and rescue us from coming wrath. If you go to the last verse in chapter 2, when Jesus comes, I want to have souls with me. They're my crown. They're my reason to rejoice when Jesus comes. If I can point to people and say, by your grace, God, I pointed that person to you. That will be heaven. Chapter 3, verse 13, you want to live your life in such a holy way that when he comes back, you're blameless. And chapter 4, the end of the chapter, we use at funerals all the time. When a godly person has passed away and the family is grieving, we say, nothing wrong with grieving, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope, right? <laughs> because when Jesus comes again, he's going to rapture that loved one of yours and when Jesus comes, before you ever see Jesus, that loved one will already be with him. Comfort one another with these words that Jesus is coming with all of those who've gone before in Christ. And then chapter 5, again, when he comes, may you be found sanctified, holy, uh, blameless in his sight. The coming of Jesus Christ motivates us to purity. It motivates us to witness so we'll have souls when he comes. It motivates us to hope because we will be rescued from the wrath. Oh, the blessed second coming of Jesus Christ has practical effect on our life. Now remember chapter 1, verse 3. If you look at that just for a moment, and I'll have it on the screen, there were three things that marked the believers, Paul said. I'm encouraged to hear your work of faith and your labor of love and your endurance inspired by hope. Now he gets to the end of the chapter and in two verses says the same thing with different words. The work of faith is turning to Christ. The labor of love is serving the living God. And the hope that inspires endurance is the hope, the waiting for Jesus to come again. This is a literary term called inclusio. You end with the very thing that you started with. It neatly ties together the package. It bookends the message. 
This is about a model church with model believers. And this is what they look like. They're turning, and they're serving, and they're waiting. That's the way the church ought to be. By the way, I notice in verse 10 some great names for Jesus. We are to wait for God's Son. He's called God's Son. The name Jesus is mentioned. By the way, that name means what? Savior. For he shall save. Give him the name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. And that's what he does. He delivers us from the wrath to come. If you go back to verse 1, and I think it's in verse 3 as well, he is called Christ or Messiah. Those are the popular early names for Jesus. God's Son, Jesus, Savior, Messiah or Christ. Four popular names for Jesus. Have you ever seen this ancient Christian symbol? The fish? The Greek word is written inside the fish, ichthus. That's the Greek word for fish. But you take every letter from that Greek word and it stands for one of those names of Christ. For instance, the letter that looks like our I stands for Jesus, Jesus. The X is the Greek word key that stands for Christos, the Greek word for Christ. By the way, the next time you see Christmas, don't think someone is necessarily trying to cross Christ out. The X is the abbreviation for the name Christ. In my sermon notes, I never write out the name Christ, I just put an X for Christos. The middle letter is the letter for Theos, God. And the next letter, looking like our Y, is the Greek word weos, son. So those two go together, God's son. And the last is sigma, or the S, and that stands for soter, or savior. So the Greek word ichthus, fish, represents the four popular names of Jesus. He is Jesus, Christ, God's son, savior. Now, they couldn't mention that um, openly without persecution, so they would just draw a fish in the ground. And that way you would know this is where worship is. Where do we go worship? Look for the fish. <laughs> and that's where it is. You go into some of these ancient cities, and you'll notice that they actually put directions on the pavement so you knew where to go. And in Ephesus... One of the marks still uh, bearing today is a footprint. And you say, oh, you know, just like sometimes we see footprints leading us somewhere today, they had footprints in Ephesus. Oh, that's pretty neat. Where does that lead to? The brothel. <laughs> and it's still there. It's been uncovered. And people were to follow the way. But you see a fish, and that would lead you to the place where the Christians are worshiping. There was another ancient symbol and uh, we'll show it with the, the next slide here. And you think of these same five Greek letters. You can go ahead and put those up. And the, the I, let's show that by a red line, just straight up and down. It's kind of hard to see, but do you see that red line? That will stand for the first letter I. Now superimpose that, the next name, the Greek letter key or X. Put the green X over the red. Superimpose on that the next letter, the theta, the circle with the line through the middle, and notice what you have. 
you have a wheel, right? You can still superimpose the last two names of Christ, what looks like a Y, weos, son, that's in yellow, hard to see, and then sigma in blue can still follow all of those lines, and you've got this wheel that was also the ancient symbol of the early church. Now notice this next picture taken from the ruins in the city of Ephesus that we saw just this last spring. <laughs> it's still in the pavement, 1,900 years old. This is the way. Walk to Christ. And as we come down to our own day and time, I want us to realize that some things haven't changed. The authentic believer is marked by one who turns, who serves, and who waits. For Jesu Christos, God's Son, my Savior. Choose your team. Turncoats. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that each one of us can take an inventory of our life and say, by your grace, I've turned to Christ from all idols and other gods. It is my heart's desire to serve him faithfully today. He is my Savior and my Lord, and I eagerly wait for his return from heaven to deliver me from coming wrath. If there's someone here who cannot say that, today is the day. Now is the perfect time for you to trust Christ, to turn from everything else you've trusted and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Give your heart and life to him. Ask him right now to forgive you of your sin. The Bible tells us if any person calls on the name of Christ, they will be saved. That's repentance. That's turning. Lord, work in hearts this morning, we ask, and may every heart be turned to Christ. In his name we pray, amen.